So in our conversation a moment ago, I mentioned that uh, Daniel 11 uh, is a, I don't know which uh, is worse, talking about retirement or Daniel 11. It's a long chapter. Uh, so I want to begin tonight with a question. How many of you like history? <laughs> Do you like history? Because that's all Daniel chapter 11 is. A lot okay. of a lot of history and a lot of names. So I'll try to help uh, get you through it. Uh, but it does have an interesting connection into the New Testament. Uh, the one reference that Jesus makes in his Olivet Discourse is to the abomination of desolation um, in the book of Daniel. And this has led a lot of people to think about uh, Daniel as being a predictor of something that is yet awaiting in the future. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, as we get started, uh, the handout that I sent you is rather long and tedious, but I kind of inserted a couple of different maps that might make it a little bit easier. So um, we'll look at a few different things, but I've also added a couple things that might be able to visually help in this chapter. So as we wind down here in chapter um, 11 and 12, it is a part of this um, bigger section. We have been looking at some of the apocalyptic visions in the second half of the book, which is chapter 7 through 12. And we have looked at different visions. Now, when you get to chapter 11, the question becomes, is this a vision or is it a retrospective of information that the author is writing down? And you'll see what I mean here in a moment. But chapters 10 through 12 is kind of like the big final push. And it is part of bo the book that's trying to remind us that God is in control, that these nations come and they go, and that God is still on the throne, and that God is still working through his people, which in the context is the Jewish people. So look down at the bottom of the slide here. Um, this chapter uh, is 45 verses long, but it seems longer than that because the verses are pretty long themselves. So when you look at this chapter in your Bible, you'll see that it it is um, it is something that is very, um, you know, very descriptive of uh, different things that this writer wants to communicate. The way to look at it is to break the chapter up into two parts. In verses 2 through 20, there's a war that is going on between between two empires, the Seleucids and uh, the Ptolemaic Empire. And one is to the north and one is to the south. Then you get to verse 21 through 45, and Antiochus Epiphanes, which has been hinted at throughout this book, finally comes into view and it talks about his reign of terror and then his end. So what we're going to do is take a look at the first part, uh, and then um, hopefully we'll see that it it's then kind of in sequence that the author goes in to probably somebody that is his contemporary as he's putting this material together, and that is Antiochus Epiphanes. And there's kind of an anticipation of his downfall. So with that said, uh, 
in verses 2 through 39, you really do have kind of a historical retrospective. And this first panel in the chapter is a review of a lot of the Near Eastern history from the time of Persia uh, all the way down through Greece as well. Um, what's fascinating about this, when you take a look at the way the book uh, of the chapter rather begins, um, the first thing that we note is there's another chronological marker. But I mentioned last week that this is kind of an unfortunate chapter break. The chapter really should begin in verse two rather than verse one. But there is this parenthesis in verse one that says, um, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now, we have said several times that there's different datings around Darius the Mede, but I think what's happening is it's trying to reconnect back to earlier in the book. And then you're given new information beginning in verse two. And this is how it reads. It says, as it begins, now then I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not, uh, it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. So in these first several verses here, you have uh, a war, two competing empires. Now, the difficulty here is knowing who this is referring to. You'll notice on the slide there that when Persia comes into power, after Cyrus the Great lets uh, the people uh, go back to their homeland, uh, to rebuild the temple and uh, settle back into Jerusalem. Uh, there are 10 different Persian monarchs, uh, historically speaking, that have come into view. The problem here is we don't know which ones are being talked about here. So it's best to kind of look at this chapter as the events that cover uh, the fourth through the second centuries BCE until you get to the person that becomes a little bit clearer in the chapter, and that's Antiochus Epiphanes. So the text, it seems as though, is written shortly before um, Antiochus comes on the scene. And so this is kind of looking back over the things that have happened. And uh, as it does so, it doesn't give uh, but a few names in the chapter, uh, rather it's designated as the king of the north and the king of the south. Um, and what we find is that the two empires that are being referred to here are Persia and Greece. But being able to pinpoint with accuracy the identification of these kings is conjecture at best. So what is clear is it's leading up to uh, the power and the rule of um, Antiochus Epiphanes, which seems to have been the primary thing on the mind of the author all the way through 
the book. So when you look at this, you come here and you begin to see a little bit of what has often been called the divine warrior culture. When you look at the Old Testament, it is a part of a culture where there is a lot of violence and there's a lot of elevation of different gods being the divine warrior that fights on behalf of uh, that God's people. And this kind of fits into that framework a little bit. There's even different uh, poetic hymns that are given uh, that celebrate. Now that goes all the way back to Moses. When you think about the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 14, the next thing in chapter 15 is this, um, this piece of poetry that is written and sung celebrating the Exodus. So it stretches out over the course of the uh, Old Testament, and it's connected really to other cultures as well, in particular, different Canaanite myths and stories of God like Baal and Marduk and that type of thing. But the thing to notice is here, all of them tend to emphasize the same things. Uh, there's some type of a threat, whether it's cosmic, national, or personal. Then there's a battle that takes place. Then God is victorious through it. And then there is this celebration, sometimes in connection with the Jews, there's a procession to Jerusalem. And there's a subsection of Psalms called the Ascent psalms that were usually sung as they traveled into Jerusalem. Salvation then it comes to be a part of the experience of the people. Now, by that, we don't mean salvation in a uh, post-mortem sense, like after death. It's this idea of deliverance from an enemy. And then there is the hope that there is a universal peace that will come and the thing to keep in mind when you look at the Old Testament is war is a constant throughout the Old Testament. There's a lot of anxiety about it. There is a lot of violence. And when you read that, you then insert these type of stories, Abraham, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, Saul, David, all of these individuals were warriors. Uh, some of them were judges, which is another term for a warrior-like leader. Um, and these different conflicts are spoken of in different ways. Sometimes it's very literal. Uh, sometimes it's very metaphorical. Uh, so you have to kind of take the context in mind and kind of keep that in mind as you look at some of these different stories of war and violence in the Old Testament. Does that make sense to everybody? Any thoughts there? So when you come, when I just read this paragraph, verses two through four, I don't know if um, if this kind of stood out because he's not named, but this uh, paragraph here, the mighty king that will arise, is more than likely Alexander the Great, and he was a great warrior. I mean, he conquered the known world. Um, he had great powers, it says here in verse three, and he does as he pleases. It seems as though uh, nothing can stop him from doing what he wants to do. So then you see in verse four, um, <clears throat> kind of the same element that we saw in chapter eight, when there was the ram and the he goat that are in conflict with each other. 
the problem that comes into play here is Alexander the Great dies at a pretty young age and he gets sick and his kingdom, which is massive, uh, is divided up among four generals. And that is could be what's being referred to in verse four, uh, where it is parceled out to the four winds of heaven. Uh, that might be the four generals, or it might be a geographical idea that any way you look, north, south, east, west, it belonged to Alexander the Great, and now it is going to be subdivided uh, to some generals. Um, and it says here that one of his descendants does not take over um, in verse four. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power to he exercise because the empire will be uprooted and given to others. And that's really what the next section is about, how this kingdom of Alexander the Great is divided and how it's parceled out and the political intrigue that goes into these different rulers trying to uh, take this very important piece of land for themselves. And uh, so in verses three and four, thing to keep in mind, Alexander the Great. Then you come to this idea, the section being parceled out here. So let me kind of downsize our picture for a second. <clears throat> the four kings um, that are uh, are here in this section are uh, different geographical areas. So Macedon, which later in the New Testament, that becomes Macedonia, which uh, you have Athens and Corinth and uh, that area over here. You have Pergama. Remember, one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation is the church in Pergamum. And here's Ephesus. So this is Asia Minor here. Now, these two, there's nothing in chapter 11 that talks about these two areas of the division of Alexander the Great's uh, kingdom. What it is talking about is this area called Syria here. Uh, and this area is in Persia, and it's called the Seleucid Empire, the Seleucid Empire. And in the chapter, that is the king of the north. Then as you come down, here's Jerusalem, as you can see the big arrow there, uh, you come down and you move into the south, and this is Egypt down here. And this is uh, the Ptolemaic Empire. And in chapter 11, that is the king of the south. So the thing to keep in mind is the king of the north is the Seleucid Empire. It's up here in Syria, which includes Asia Minor in the New Testament. There you see Laodicea, um, which is another church, uh, one of the seven churches in Revelation. Then you have um, the king of the south, which is Egypt down here. And so just kind of keep those two things in mind as we read through the next section of the chapter. These are the two kings. Now, they're designated as king of the north and king of the south. But as I mentioned a moment ago, they there's not names that is given in the chapter. So when you have a multitude of different kings, 
it might be that it's referencing one particular king, or it might be talking uh, about how the reign of this empire and this empire is in uh, conflict with one another. So just kind of keep that in mind. And we'll try to put some names to it, but I think it's one of those things that uh, you have to kind of keep in mind as you're looking at the chapter that we're not actually told uh, what who these uh, kings are. So with that in mind, so you come to the next paragraph here and the kings of the South and the North um, were given information. Now, in this section here, um, it, it, it really runs uh, from verse five through verse 20. And I'll read, um, I'll read that. I, I don't know how to do it other than just to read it first and then pick out some things that I think are pertinent that relate to some of what biblical scholars think are the individuals that are involved. So beginning in verse five, it says, the king of the South will become strong but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress, and he will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. And then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. And when the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south, and those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. And then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the South will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the South. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. 
After this, he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Okay, so that is kind of a mystery. We're told about historical elements, but we're not given names. So when you look at this slide, if we can uh, put a little bit of um, names and dates together, here's how it will look. So verses 5 through 20 is the period between the death of Alexander the Great and the reign of Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes. And there you can see the dates from 323 BCE to the reign of Antiochus, which is 175 to 164 BCE. The two generals that um, are probably being talked about here is uh, Seleucus and Ptolemy. So these two individuals, um, so Ptolemy is the king to the south, Seleucus the king to the north. And what you're going to find is the king of the south, Ptolemy, uh, he reigns from 323 to 285 BCE. And he is what is known as the founder of the Ptolemaic kingdom down in Egypt. The king to the north is actually one of Alexander the Great's officers, Seleucus Nicantor. And he will reign from 358 to 281. And he becomes the founder of what's called the Seleucid Kingdom. So you have the Ptolemies and the Seleucids that are uh, in this political intrigue, either fighting or trying to make alliance or trying to outwit the other um, uh, side. And that comes to play uh, in verse 6. Did you notice when I read verse 6, it says, the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. So what scholars think happens here is that Ptolemy II, um, uh, who, uh, who married his daughter, uh, allowed his daughter Berenice to be married to Antiochus II, um, What's fascinating is scholars say that this marriage became possible after, now this is not Antiochus Epiphanes, this is Antiochus II, divorces his first wife, which is also his half-sister, Laodice, and so he gets rid of her uh, so that he can marry Berenice so that there's this political alliance. Now what's fascinating is after Ptolemy's death, Antiochus then decides to reject, because he doesn't need the political alliance anymore, he rejects Berenice, and then he gets back with his first wife, Laodice. Okay, now, a lot of political maneuvering that's going on here, and Laodice gets the last laugh because she ends up murdering both Antiochus and Berenice, along with an infant son and some Egyptian attendants as well. So, there's a lot of revenge uh, and retaliation that's taking place here. Verses seven through nine uh, tell the story of Berenice's brother, uh, scholars think Ptolemy III, uh, king of Egypt, and he launches several war campaigns against uh, the Seleucians. So 
when you look at this, verses 9 through 13 is really trying to recapture much of what went on in this battle for territory and power. Verses 10 and 11 um, probably is referring to uh, a battle down in Raphia, uh, which was a part of Antiochus III's campaign. So now we've seen Antiochus II and the third, and we'll eventually get to the fourth. And this battle takes place somewhere around 217 BCE. And what we find is uh, the description, it's not in this chapter, but other historical uh, elements suggest that Antiochus III uh, brought uh, 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, 102 war elephants, matched against 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants of Ptolemy. Now, that seems to be an exaggeration. Um, I mean, when you think about the amount of, um, of soldiers and when you think about uh, the amount of animals and chariots and all that type of thing, it seems as though this is kind of exaggerated. But the point, I think, is it seems to have been a pretty big battle. And Ptolemy IV is victorious, and that's when he settles uh, into a peace settlement with Antiochus III. Um, and then that must be the meaning of verse 9, where he returns to his own land. In other words, they somehow forge a peace treaty. Now, some of this background information, again, comes from uh, apocryphal-type books, Third Maccabees. Um, actually, most scholars designate Third Maccabees as a pseudepigraphal book, uh, which is a little bit different than Apocrypha. Apocrypha is a selection of books that is not incorporated into the canon um, in, in Protestant Bibles. Pseudepigrapha is a book that is written under a false name. You, you see in the title there, pseudo. Um, and so we don't even know who possibly wrote that. So this section here is history in retrospect. And I think it's not naming the individuals, but at least historical research helps us to see that there seems to be movements that can be um, collaborated uh, with other research. And maybe one of the things that's happening here is the writers and editors of Daniel uh, dare not name these people lest they be put into additional danger than, the, than what they are all, already are in. So uh, to finish this slide, Antiochus III moves west to Greece until he is defeated by the Romans. And then his son, Antiochus IV, who actually was taken hostage to Rome for a little while before uh, he came back to the land. But Antiochus III became deeply in debt because he was defeated and he had to make massive tribute payments uh, to the Roman Empire. And so what we find taking place here is some of the things that he does 
to try to raise the funds to pay tribute to Rome. So that's how scholars kind of try to put it together. So Essie, if you want to look over here, I don't know, I think I, I don't know if I gave you this map or not. It might be easier to think a little bit about it, how it unfolds by looking at the map here. So you can see the dates here, 191, 190, 217, and 200 BCE. So again, you're counting down. So the first thing is that Antiochus III uh, is defeated by Ptolemy down at a place called Raphia here. And then a number of years later in 200 BCE, uh, Antiochus III becomes victorious in a battle. So he kind of resurges here. And then as you get over into his battle with Rome, now it's not all the way over in, in Rome, but it is in this area of Macedonia, Achaia, Greece, that area there. And he is defeated in 191 BCE. And then again, over in Asia Minor here in 190 BCE. So with these two defeats here, um, Rome is going to insist upon tribute being paid to the empire uh, because he, he lost the battle. And um, so you, you find some of this in, you look at verse 20, okay? His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. Now, verse 20, this this tax collector is the one that is making sure that uh, this tribute is going to be paid. And, and even in the New Testament, tax collectors were known for collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. So... Uh, I don't know if that helps you. I think this map helps me visually to kind of look at how uh, Antiochus III's reign goes. Um, but this chapter here, uh, where we just looked, is is all apart, most scholars think, of his reign. Do you have any comments or questions on that? Then that brings us down to verse 20. And verse 20 is where we begin to transition to this man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, technically, he is Antiochus IV. He reigns between 175 and 163 BCE. Um, there's a lot of intrigue as to how he rises to power. He was taken captive uh, in Rome, but it seems as though as he comes back, he is an individual that has, um, he has a lot of uh, power uh, militarily, but what's fascinating here is what he does to the high priesthood of the Jews. Um, the high priesthood is up for sale, and you're going to see on the, the screen here that the first high priest, Jason, uh, pays a total of 440 talents of silver, we're told in 2 Maccabees 4.8, to get that office. Then what we find is a guy by the name of Menelaus 
uh, actually upped the offer and paid 740 talents of silver. And so Jason is uh, the high priest is deposed. So just when you look at all that's going on here, Antiochus, the reason he takes a lot of the spoils of war, I think, is because even though he's powerful, Rome is Rome is still on his shoulder. And I think what we find taking place here is the accumulation, not only of power, but of riches, is all a part of trying to stay in, in the position of being the king. So let's take a look at verse 21. Now, it's interesting that verse 21 calls him the detestable person, okay, uh, or the contemptible person in the NIV. So we're going to read a little bit and of this as well. So it says, he, speaking of the prior ruler, will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will sweep away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. And after coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor forefathers did. He will dis, dis, uh, he will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers, and he will plot the overthrow of fortress, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots uh, devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. So we're still talking as well about the king of the north and the king of the south here. But what we're going to find is it's leading into Antiochus Epiphanes. So it goes on. The king of the north, verse 28, will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. They will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart, and then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant, and he will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Keep that phrase in mind. Uh, that's the phrase that Jesus uses in Matthew 24. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword and be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Okay, <clears throat> so 
again, we're piecing all of this together because the names are not given. So let me have you look at this slide for a second. So the rise of Antiochus IV uh, is surrounded by uh, him capturing spoils of war, receiving payoffs uh, for the high priesthood. Um, Antiochus comes into the land. He lavishes uh, this uh, uh, all these riches upon um, sp specific people that he's trying to manipulate. Um, in the history of Antiochus, um, he he has his designs to want to conquer Egypt. Um, he is unsuccessful a couple of different times. So uh, I want you to just keep looking at this slide. You'll notice again, if you really want to do an interesting read, provided that you like history, and I know I'm maybe testing your patience tonight with all these names, but if you were to read Second uh, Maccabees chapter 5, verses 11 down through 21, you'll find this information as well, but names are given. So I'm just going to read a couple of verses out of Second Maccabees 5. It says um, here that uh, in verse 11, I'll start there. When news of what had happened reached the king, he took it to mean that Judea was in revolt. So raging inwardly, he left Egypt. So he's doing a campaign in Egypt and he took the city by storm. He commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to kill those who went into their houses. We're seeing this happen before our very eyes right now with what's happening uh, over in Israel and Gaza. Then there was a massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women, and children, and slaughter of young girls and infants. And within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, as many were sold into slavery as were killed. Then it says, not content with this, Antiochus, so now he's named. Antiochus dared to enter the most holy temple in all the world, guided by Menelaus, who had become a traitor both to the laws and to his country. He took the holy vessels with his polluted hands, and he swept away with profane hands the votive offerings that other kings had made to enhance the glory and honor of the place. He's talking about the temple there. Antiochus was elated in spirit and did not perceive that the Lord was angered for a little while because of the sins of those who lived in the city, and that this was the reason he was disregarding the holy place. But if if it had not happened that they were involved in many sins, this man would have been flogged and turned back from his rash act as soon as he came forward. <laughs> in other words, the writer of Second Maccabees is saying, you know what, it's all the, the fault of the people because they had turned from God. Um, and then it goes on and it says this, but the Lord did not choose the nation for the sake of the holy place, but the place for the sake of the nation. Therefore, the place itself shared in the misfortunes that befell the nation and afterward participated in its benefits. And what was forsaken in the wrath of the Almighty was restored again in all its glory when the Lord became reconciled. 
So Antiochus carried off 1,800 talents. Here we go. Now we're told how much he stole. 1,800 talents from the temple and hurried away to Antioch, thinking in his arrogance that he could sail on the land and walk on the sea because his mind was elated. So he is an individual that is filled with all kinds of arrogance. And what we find now, if you look at this map, again, we can we can uh, see it visually a little bit better. So again, you find here a couple of campaigns where Antiochus IV is going to go down to, into Egypt because he wants to uh, conquer Egypt. And uh, he will be thwarted here. So you hear um, here on this map, attempt by Antiochus IV to conquer Egypt is thwarted by a Roman general, Gallus, uh, Papalius, and then uh, he attempted uh, an attempt by Antiochus IV to conquer Egypt is thwarted by Ptolemy VII. Now notice there's a big jump there from Ptolemy I, and that's earlier in the chapter. And then Antiochus is finally victorious over um, uh, Ptolemy VI. So that actually comes before this battle here in 170 BCE. And then in, uh, when he is defeated by Ptolemy VII, he goes back through the land of uh, Judea. And that's when he, in 169 BCE, loots the Jewish temple and um, and causes all kinds of casualties and sells people into slavery and that type of thing. That that helps a little bit, doesn't it, to see it on a map rather than in the text or even in the passage that I read from Second Maccabees. So let me get you back up on the screen and see if you have any thoughts or questions on any of that. That's what chapter 11 is really talking about, is all of these um, issues that are going on. And Jerusalem and the Jewish people are sitting right in the middle of all this. Um, you know, they, they have always sat in the middle of a land that wants to be controlled by power in the ancient Near East. And, um, and that's what's happening here in chapter 11. Any thoughts or questions? Okay, so let's come now to this abomination of desolation for a moment. <clears throat> I already mentioned a couple things here, but um, if you were to go on and read a little bit more uh, in the book of 2 Maccabees, if you got to chapter 6, what you'd find is that what Antiochus really wanted to do was set up in the temple an altar to Zeus. We're told that in 2 Maccabees 6.2. And he didn't have any respect um, for the God of Israel. And what we find taking place is that Antiochus probably, not only did he want to secure the wealth that was in the temple, but he probably also wanted to set up a garrison for his troops to stay there. So is probably also a citadel. Now, when you get into the New Testament and the second temple uh, is rebuilt, if you see a model of it, th there are 
these citadels at the corners of um, of Herod's temple, where the Romans could keep watch over the Jewish people and squell any uprising and revolution. So this isn't that wasn't the first time uh, in in the sense of Herod the Great. It seems to go back to Antiochus as well. Does that make sense to everybody? So let's come back to chapter 11 of Daniel. And here's what happens now. Here we see the end of Antiochus. And in verse 40, it says, at the time of the end of the king of the south, will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. So there's this, this huge war that is developing. And he will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, that is uh, Judea, Jerusalem, the promised land. And many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. So there's something going on here because in the Old Testament, um, Edom... The Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites are all enemies of Israel. So there's probably some alliances that are being made there. Verse 42, he will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. And he will gain control of the treasures of the gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to an end, and no one will help him. So what we're told is <clears throat> he, he, he's going to come to an end. Now, here's the problem with this paragraph. Scholars said this never happened. In other words, Antiochus never conquered Egypt. Um, so what happens is a lot of scholars within evangelicalism say this last chapter, I mean this last paragraph, is still awaiting a fulfillment in the future because Jesus mentions in Matthew 24, and we're going to go there in a second, um, this uh, abomination of desolation. So this paragraph that I just read, verse 40 down through 45, becomes a key text, just like the 70 weeks that we talked about, in a template for end time events within certain the theologies or certain schematics that are drawn up. Now, since we in the West have been inundated with that template uh, through the Left Behind series, um, a, a high concentration and even a obsession with end time events uh, in the 70s, late great planet Earth, um, you, Hal Lindsey's book kind of ignited that uh, that interest. And so everybody was looking into Daniel and more so into the book of Revelation to see when all these events are going to occur. 
and then you have this very complex structure um, that, and you've seen different versions of it. I don't care if it's in in the Ryrie Study Bible or Clarence Larkin has a book that's got all kinds of elaborate drawings and that type of thing. But this is where it begins, is in uh, Daniel chapter 11 and earlier that we saw the 70 weeks of Daniel. So all of this is given, I guess, a little bit of justification because Jesus uh, does seem to be giving us uh, a picture of an, a coming apocalypse in Matthew chapter 24. As I mentioned a moment ago, though, at the end of verse 39, it, there is this significant transition into events that scholars say, eh, we can't find any evidence that um, this ever happened. Uh, there's no ancient sources that tell us of a, a counterattack upon Antiochus by Ptolemy, um, the looting of Egypt, uh, the Susan tree over Libya and other places, that type of thing. So we're at a point where the writer begins, I think, to anticipate the future rather than look back on it retrospectively. It may be that the writer is anticipating the downfall of Antiochus and is trying to envision, like political commentators do today, so you turn on TV and political commentators try to surmise what's going to happen now between Israel and Gaza and Hamas and all that type of thing, and some of them will have keen insights and some of them will be dead wrong. There is that element here as well in chapter 11. So this anticipation of how this is going to end and how Israel is going to be elevated uh, back to its chosen position, how the temple will ref, uh, regain its glory and that type of thing. So you, you can look at this material, but what I think is important is uh, down here, um, I ask the question, why would a 6th century prophet recount in great detail the fates of a series of 3rd and 2nd century kings BCE, and then without warning, skip to the distant future? So why is there this jump between what is obviously a historical retrospective to all the way, which is now over 2,000 years later, um, and it still hasn't happened yet, but yet this is this intrigue that people have with uh, newspaper eschatology, and we're right in the middle of a news cycle right now with Israel and Hamas, where I will bet, I will bet that there's going to be a lot of articles and a lot of sermons that are that are going to say we're we're at the end. This is it. Jesus is coming. That type of thing. The thing to remember is what Jesus says. No man knows the time. No man knows the day. And the other thing to keep in mind is people have been anticipating the return of Christ now for over 2000 years. So we have to be very careful because what happens is a lot of people love to make 
predictions why Jesus is, you know, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 1988. Okay, well, that's come and gone. And you have people like that all the time. And instead of just saying, okay, the Lord's going to set up his kingdom, he's in control. Um, we were obsessed with trying to put dates and timelines and chronologies to things. And I think that can be a little bit uh, dangerous. And so something to keep in mind, but any comments, questions before I get to Matthew 24, and that's where we're going to end our night. Okay. So Jesus does reference, uh, Daniel 1131, where it talks about the abomination of desolation. So if you have your Bible, go over to do chapter 24 of Matthew. <clears throat> This section of, of Jesus' teaching is called the Olivet Discourse because in verse 3, he gives this teaching while sitting on the Mount of Olives. So his disciples are asking him, Jesus, uh, when are you going to uh, come? And when is going to be the end of the age? Which is a way of saying, when are you going to get rid of our enemies? When are you going to conquer Rome? So Jesus is leaving the Temple Mount. In verse 1, he's leaving the Temple Mount, and he's walking with his disciples. And then all of a sudden he says, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. He ta he's talking about the destruction of this temple. And this temple... Uh, will come down in 70 AD. The Roman general Titus will, because of an uprising by uh, the Jewish people, uh, will uh, invade Jerusalem and will burn the temple to the ground. Parts of it are left standing. And Bud and Shelley just saw part of that at the Wailing Wall when they were in Jerusalem. But for the most part, uh, the sacrificial system, uh, the high priesthood, all these things, are destroyed because of the destruction. Now, what's fascinating here is in Matthew 24, um, the disciples say, when, when is your coming? And when is the end of the age? Then Jesus goes into a rather long explanation in chapter 24. And he, he says, okay, keep, keep an eye out for these things. Verse four, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and these are all the beginning of birth pains. So then he, he keeps going. But if you jump to verse 15, here's where he references Daniel. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. 
Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So Jesus references Daniel. However, he is referencing his generation, and he's saying there's not going to be a stone left upon another in the temple. And here's what you're going to see. You're going to see wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be this abomination that causes desolation. Now, what is he talking about there? It may be that what's happening here is he's drawing upon Daniel as an illustration for what will happen within their lifetime. So this desolating sacrilege uh, does happen uh, when the Romans come in at, in 70 AD and they will set up their Roman standards in the temple as they attack and, and it desecrates the temple just like Antiochus IV did. The first century fulfillment of all these events would culminate really with the destruction of the temple. Um, here's where you'll get different, different theological systems trying to take all this material and sort it out. So some scholars believe that the events of Daniel and the first century are a prediction of a, a fulfillment at, uh, at the time Christ will return. This is uh, technically called dispensationalism. Um, it's the idea that all these things still have a future fulfillment. Other scholars, though, suggest that this is fulfilled in the first century. So here's a picture that's drawn of what happened in 70 AD when the Roman soldiers uh, surround the city, set it on fire, uh, begin to destroy places. Um, and eventually, here's the temple area over here. It will be taken down. And uh, the only, like I said before, the only part that's really kind of left standing is the Wailing Wall, which becomes this sacred place uh, for Jews who still look back uh, all these years and still are praying and hoping that, that uh, a temple could be restored. Um, but this, I thought this picture was interesting because it kind of gives you the pathos of what is being talked about in Matthew chapter 24. So I can send you this chart. I put this together this afternoon after I already sent out the uh, handout for tonight. But I thought of maybe a way of thinking about Matthew 24 is to think about the, what the text talks about, and then the potential fulfillment of it historically. So it talks about the temple being destroyed. That's completed in 70 AD. There are going to be others that are going to come that claim to be the Messiah, the Christ. Um, in 66 AD, there were several people, uh, especially three, that claimed to be the Messiah. So they they claimed that they were the fulfillment of a lot of the Old Testament expectations. Wars of uh, rumors of wars, famine, earthquake. Um, 
the in AD 64, the Roman Empire became unstable. Uh, that's supposed to be there, not three. There was a famine during the reign of Claudius that's actually mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 11. Persecution and martyrdom is mentioned. Uh, it's fascinating that most of the disciples died a martyr's death. Um, many will fall away. Paul references, even in some of his latter epistles, that many have abandoned the faith uh, during the troubled times um, that he was trying to spread the good news. False prophets, um, some of these false prophets urged the revolt that uh, started in 66 AD that eventually led to the destruction in 70 AD. Then finally, the temple is profaned. Um, Titus sets up his Roman standards, but it is also believed that Nero planned to put his statue in the Holy of Holies. So, you know, Nero, the one that blamed the Christians uh, when Rome burned, if he, um, he planned to use the holy place as kind of a, a deification to himself. So I have given um, you a lot of information tonight, I know. And if you don't like history, I apologize. But I don't know how you make sense of this chapter without getting into what potentially happened historically. Um, it's wide open to you. What are your thoughts? You have some questions, some comments that you uh, you want to make? So the thing to keep in mind is there's always more than one way to look at various things in the scripture. And usually, depending on the church we go to or the books that we read, we're, we usually are limited to one perspective. So the best thing I can encourage you is if you are interested in these type of subjects, to read widely and read the different viewpoints of different authors, uh, because you'll see it's a lot more complex than a lot of times preachers you know, make it to be. It, it's not easy. Um, it's not easy, even if you only have one perspective, let alone trying to juggle other potential perspectives. But thoughts, comments, questions. You know, the uh, you mentioned earlier just the uh, how how much of this correlates with what historians know is is that that comparison it would be interesting. Yeah. You know, little bit of that but it's it's um well you know what uh, probably would help um is there's got to be resources online that come from like the history channel the that type of information uh during that era of time where you can watch it on tv and not try to keep all of these dates and people's names um correct in your mind when you, you know, you're trying to read the text here. So you can take advantage of those. Have any of you heard of the great courses? There's a series of um, things that are available called the great courses. And um, some of them are in the library and they are specialized uh, in a lot of different areas. There's a number of those that are his, uh, historical in nature as well. So either the History Channel, you can look some of those type of things up. 
uh, online or the great courses, which are uh, also online. But you can get some of that material, which includes video elements as well as written text. Uh, you can get that the, some of those through the library as well. So if if that if you have interest in that type of thing, you can take advantage of that. So that, that's up to you. You know, some people go well. That you know that's beyond my interest or whatever, and that's fine too. Other thoughts. So it, it it's. Uh, it's something that's complex, and at times it can get really intense. Keep your eye open, because what's going to happen, I, I'm almost positive, and I would be wonderfully glad to be wrong, but what's happening right now in Israel and Hamas is going to amp up this end-time uh, uh, conversation and projection. It might be interesting but always take it in context, okay? Don't don't go overboard. Some people get really wild-eyed about it. And um, so that's the best advice I think I can give you regarding I've that. already had two people mention that to me when they were asking about our trip. Did you? And, you know, how, you know, were you there when the stuff started? And, you know, no, we'd just gotten out of there. and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it. the longer this goes on, I, I think the more this will be an itch that people want to scratch, you know, so. All right, so next week, we're going to finish the book, okay? And uh, chapter 12 is not as intimidating at all as chapter 11. So uh, keep your head high, okay? <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll call in a night i hope you have a great rest of the week and we'll finish next week okay thank you